In this episode of 92i Talks, Dan Rather discusses his new book, What Unites Us, with Andy Cohen. Rather offers commentary on the world we live in, what our core ideals have been and should be, and what it means to be an American. The conversation was recorded on January 23, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hi, Dan. Hi, Annie. How you doing? I'm doing great. Great. This may seem like an unlikely combination uh, to some of you, but I, I just want to explain myself. Uh, besides the fact that I've, I've been a big Dan Rather fan uh, from uh, my childhood, quite frankly, I, I, I worked at CBS News as a producer from 1990 to 2000. And one of the highlights of, of my time there was that I, I was a producer of a piece that Dan did about uh, Don Imus. It was a profile for 48 hours. And I got to go with Dan Rather to Monument Valley, Utah uh, for a weekend for 48 hours with Don Imus. But for me, it was uh, just a joy to be able to sit in the back seat of a car just hammering him with questions about his life and career, uh, which I remain as fascinated uh, today about as I was then. Uh, he now also, among his portfolio of many jobs today, he hosts a show, as unlikely as this might sound, on Radio Andy, on Sirius XM, and it's called Dan Rather's America, and uh, I couldn't be prouder to be here tonight with him and to uh, to have you on Radio Andy. So thanks for having me here tonight. Well, thank um, you, Andy. Thank you. And uh, the book is great, and it's and it's it's the perfect time for this book. And I'm going to get into that in a second. But first, I just want to take a little trip down memory lane and talk to you uh, a little bit about your career. And I, I'd like to play a little word association with you. Um, so I'm just going to throw out a name of someone that you've interviewed or worked with or, or known. And I just want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. You see, this is why it's always dangerous to do it. <laughs> I'd be happy to try Thank it. you. Uh, Richard Nixon. Tortured. Tortured. Uh, Martin Luther King. Calm at the center. George Bush Sr. More involved in Iran-Contra than he's ever acknowledged. <laughs> and, and you tried to pin him down there in that seven-minute interview. Uh, George Bush, George W. Bush Jr. I wish he had been a better reader. <laughs> Hillary Clinton. Tight, wound tight. Lee. Uh, Walter Cronkite. Uncle Walter. Always Uncle Walter. Uh, Dolly Parton. <laughs> I'm pausing only because the truth is, the first thing that popped in my mind is too bad she's so, so flat chested. Yeah. But, but, but that's politically incorrect. I, I it's okay. <laughs> you, we have to be able to tell one joke. If we can't joke about Dolly Parton's boobs anymore, um, Saddam Hussein. Stone Cold Killer. Nelson Mandela. Incredible ability to forgive while not forgetting. Barbara Walters. Goat. Greatest of all time for a woman. 
Connie Chung. Saw her on the train. She seems to be doing great these days. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Underrated uh, presidency. Mike Wallace. God rest his soul. Good friend. Margaret Thatcher. Uh, brilliant. Tough. Peter Jennings. I wish he had taken our advice and not smoked so much. He tried, but didn't make it. How I miss him. Nancy Reagan. A bigger influence on the Reagan presidency than even we know now. We know now more than we used to. Bill Paley. Uh, godfather, founder of uh, CBS News, to whom I owe a great deal. Yasser Arafat. Tricky. Jackie Kennedy. Her French was better than she's even given credit for it being. <laughs> David Letterman. What about that beard? <laughs> <laughs> Willie Nelson. It's too bad he never got into marijuana. <laughs> Did you ever get into marijuana? No. You know, I was born too soon for grass. Uh, Were you? Beer, beer, beer and whiskey were the big evils yeah. when I was coming up. Did you ever do the news or get called into West 57th Street after you had, had hit a couple? Well, uh, you know, I drank wild turkey. And the answer to your question, I can only remember once when that happened. It isn't to say it couldn't have happened a dozen times. but I. <laughs> But I do remember once. But uh, it's amazing what three fast cups of hot coffee and, yeah. and a cold shower will do for you. Donald Trump. Tricky. <laughs> we started with Richard Nixon, tricky. We ended with Donald Trump, tricky. It's interesting. Um, Dan, you've become, thank you for doing that. You've become um, a sage, reassuring voice for uh, a real cross-section of people on Facebook, on Radio Andy, uh, in this book. How did this happen, do you think, at this moment that people, people are leaning on you to reassure them? It's a thing. Well, I really appreciate you saying that, Andy, and I hope it's true. But I'm, it uh, first of all, I'm very grateful uh, at my age and stage to have even a wee, small, microscopic uh, voice is a, is a great blessing, and I'm aware of that. As to how it happened, uh, the, the, the honest answer is damned if I know. Because uh, this frequently happens in life. What I do know is that I was slow coming onto social media. My presence on social media and the two basic platforms I have on social media, my own Facebook page, and then the News and Guts news page, uh, I was slow to come to social media. I took the attitude, uh, you know, listen, I'm too old to learn all that stuff. But some younger members of my staff, uh, including uh, Alex Van Amson, who's here tonight with her father, George, uh, came to me and said, Dan, if you want to be relevant, if you want to stay even relevant on the margins, if you want to be part of the conversation at all, it's imperative. It's not, a, it's not an option. And so I began doing a little bit of Twitter and to my surprise, it caught on. I have no illusions. There are people with a lot bigger Twitter 
followings and Facebook followings than I have, but it was impressive. Uh, and so that's when I started doing Facebook. So it sort of built on itself as to why my best guess, and it is only a guess, is that these are, let's face it, you know, particularly tumultuous times. A lot of people are not just worried, they're, they're downright scared, they're afraid. So I think mostly because I've uh, been blessed to live a long time and because it's at least reasonably well known that I've traveled some and covered some stories. I think people are looking, were almost desperately, looking for a, a steady, reliable voice that could at least attempt to put things in some context and perspective, particularly historical perspective. That's my best guess. The book uh, is about what unites us, and I want to talk a little bit before we get into that about what tears us apart. Right. And one thing that I uh, feel is that cable news is one of the, been one of the most divisive forces in politics uh, and in the the tenor of our conversation um, that that we have going today. Where do you where do you how do you feel about that? Well, first of all, I think there's a considerable truth in that. But to make it clear that for the people who own and operate, and by large measure, the people working cable news, it was not their intent to do so. That right. Is, they didn't do so purposely. And while I agree with your hypothesis, I do think uh, that the influence of social media and uh, other platforms and places on the internet have really led the way with this, and cable television has more has followed it. I mm -hmm. recognize a lot of people in cable television would disagree or don't like that to be said. But for example, in, in lowering the quality of the discourse of the conversation in politics, Twitter, Facebook, all the social media platforms uh, have really unfortunately led the way down with that, and it's more a case of their leading and cable following than it is cable story. But however you want to assess blame, here we are in deep in the second decade of the 21st century. And you know, we as a country, we have great strengths, but we also have tremendous problems. And we're now facing a leadership, uh, and not just presidential leadership, that has decided that by concentrating on what divides us, the divisions in the country, that they can exploit the divisions in the country for their own partisan political and or ideological advantage, or sometimes just in case of somebody who comes to mind, their own ego. Uh, and because they, they have access to, in many cases, and control in even more cases, uh, the so-called megaphone of public opinion, if we aren't careful, they, they will create this atmosphere of, you know, we, we're, we're hopelessly divided. We're divided on almost everything, which is not true, which is why I wanted to write the book. Right. There are still more things, many more things that unite us than divide us. But if we keep listening to those voices who say, you know, we've reached a stage in this country where we're, it, it, there's no reconciliation. You're not going to be able to reconcile on race, religion, ethnicity. Uh, if we continue to allow them to dominate, then I fear for the future. As you know, Andy, you and I, you mentioned it, we've known each other a long time. I'm an optimist. 
by nature. Me too. I am, by, I, no, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature and by experience. But it isn't the kind of, oh, everything's going to be the right kind of optimism. We got problems, and I just outlined one of them, is that we have to begin thinking about, have to begin talking about, have to begin teaching our children about what unites us. Otherwise, these voices of trying to exploit our divisions will eventually prevail. You know, it's interesting you talk about that, and, and I'm thinking it's been a year since Trump's inauguration, and I'm just thinking about that inaugural address, which was typically inaugural addresses are about what unite us, and it's a hopeful message for the future. And that was a real kind of bleak message that came about a year ago. Well, it was, and I can't say I was surprised by it. No one who had covered Donald Trump, never mind anybody who knew him. I never knew him well, but I, I knew him during the late 70s through the 80s and 90s. You but, did a 60 Minutes 2 piece on him that he hated. Am uh, I right? That's true. Yeah. That, uh, fair to say that. Why did he hate it? Well, he hated it because they were honest. Uh, well, it, <laughs> the piece was not critical in and of itself, but without dwelling on it, uh, this one he was he was said he was exploring a presidential run for 2000, year 2000. Okay. And uh, we thought, well, that's interesting if he's really going to run for president. At any rate, after following him around the country, it was obvious that he wasn't really running at that time. He wasn't really running. He was promoting his condos and his golf courses, and that was the burden of the piece, and he did not take kindly to it, and it's the last time he's spoken to me. Is that right? Yeah. Really? Um, there's, a, there's a really great passage in here uh, that I'd love for you to read that I think speaks to uh, America and who we are um, as a country, just... Okay. Kind of over well, here. thank you, Andy, and I appreciate the opportunity to read. Uh, the book is divided into various chapters on core values that overwhelmingly Americans agree on, and there is a chapter on immigration. Uh, and in the middle of this chapter, for those of you who have your books and are following along in our hymnal, <laughs> <laughs> starting on the page of 108, this will be mercifully short. But it's in the middle of the chapter on immigration. We all have come here from somewhere else, and the vast majority of us are only a few generations removed from another land. Whether that is one generation or ten, it seems rather sanctimonious to claim that there is much of a difference. Not many of us can trace our arrival back a few hundred years, let alone millennia. But even the ancestors of the Native Americans are believed to have come across a land bridge from Asia, a reminder that we are a species of migration and always have been. Of course, not all migrations have been voluntary. Many are here because their ancestors were ripped from their homelands in Africa and carried across the ocean in bondage. Too many times the term American has been used as a weapon against new immigrants, especially those who look, speak, or pray differently. And yet one of the noblest ideals of our country is that anybody from anywhere can be an American. Our demons and angels between them for the soul of the United States are part of our problem. 
That was present at the baptism of a nation that proclaimed all men are created equal, but defined many men as three-fifths of a whole, never mind women of all races. And it goes on to spell out that while we have been welcoming to immigrants, that we have had and still have our problems with fully expecting people on the basis of race and gender. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, since I am an optimist and you are too, what else unites us? I mean, what should we be thinking about? Well, uh, among the many other things that unite us is an ache in almost every American's heart for this to be an ever-improving country. Want a country better for your children than it was during your lifetime and better for your children's children. Uh, that's a uniter. Among the many other things that unite us, we believe in a rule, rule of law. It's one of the great things about the country we have inscribed in our great monuments, you know, equal justice under the law. And that's, that's been the idea and the ideal of Americans from the beginning. One of the things I discuss in the book and, uh, is that that can lead one to thinking, well, that's an ideal, but we've never completely lived up to the ideal. Well, the founders understood this, and that's the reason they put in, right in the preamble of the Constitution in order to form a more perfect union, the idea that we're always striving for a more perfect union. Now, bring that up to relevance to today, that many of the voices that are preaching division, including some of the voices that are the most powerful in the country, are trying to confuse people on the difference between nationalism and patriotism that their theme is, well, nationalism is the ultimate patriotism. No, these are two different words with two different definitions in the dictionary. The essence of patriotism, true patriotism, is you love your country, and if called upon, you're prepared to die for your country. But you accept that the country is not perfect. The core of patriotism, true patriotism, is a certain humility of recognizing we have the best country in the world, but that doesn't mean we're the smartest about everything or the best about everything. The heart of nationalism is a certain conceit or arrogance. It is a more beating on your chest and bragging, listen, we're perfect, we're perfect, we need much. Now, the reason this is important to discuss, and one reason to discuss it right in the start of the book, we know from history, it's very clear from the arc, from the sweep of history, that frequently what happens and it has happened in modern times as well as ancient times. You start with an authoritarian regime, and authoritarianism very quickly tries to convince its followers that nationalism is more important than patriotism, although they may dress it up to patriotism. And it's a quick slide from extreme nationalism. For example, extreme economic nationalism in the 1920s led to the Great Depression. Extreme racial nationalism, Aryan nationalism in Nazi Germany led to Adolf Hitler. Now, this has happened time and time again in history. Now, the next slide down from extreme nationalism is nativism, and then the slide down to the bottom is tribalism. In a country such as ours, if, if we ever make that slide down through extreme nationalism to nativism to tribalism, then we're finished as a constitutional republic based on I mean, the principles of democracy. Do you think that's where 
this direction would lead us. This is the direction. I'm not suggesting that we're all the way down that road, but when people talk about, uh, for example, Steve Bannon, who's a great uh, proponent of extreme economic nationalism. Yeah. And uh, President Trump on a number of occasions indicated he is as well. Well, and I'm saying to myself, think about the 1920s. Uh, so we're not all that way, we're not all the way down the road. But your question is, are we headed in that direction? Yes. And that's one reason I wanted to write the book and spend some time in the book discussing. I think it's very important, particularly for young people. And I'm not being patronizing here. I don't want to be patronizing. Young people understand there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. And I also want them to understand what the history of societies, countries, what that history is when you go from authoritarianism down to extreme nationalism and then to nativism and tribalism. It strikes me that you were on my show last night and uh, you've become much more openly uh, opinionated in the last few years than I've ever known you to be or seen you uh, to be. Is, is that just because you're released from the shackles of CBS News? Not that they were shackles, but, no. but I mean, is it because you're... Because uh, I know you still consider yourself to be a newsman at heart and always will be. Yeah. But, but talk to me about letting some of your uh, feelings out there. That had to be a great release. And why did it happen? Well, I want to make very clear that uh, I was proud to be a part of CBS News yes. for 44 years and still am. Yeah. And so it's not a matter of feeling shackles or off. Yeah. To answer your question, it's mostly a function of age. Of <laughs> Do you not I give a shit anymore, Dan? <laughs> Short answer, no. <laughs> no, but you do reach a stage. And uh, number one, uh, reach a stage and you say, look, uh, how much longer do you have? I'm not being morbid here, but to use the old Chautauqua line, you know, I don't even buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you reach an age and say, uh, you know, I, I, want, I want the country to be better for my children and grandchildren than it was for me. And uh, I, I think the country stands moment to moment on the razor's edge of extreme danger with what's happened in the last couple of years. So what kind of person would I be? What kind of citizen would I be if I said, well, you know what, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just a journalist. Uh, uh, I don't have any thoughts about this. Uh, I am, and I have been, and remain conflicted somewhat in my mind about it, but I made the decision about two, two and a half years ago, of just, you know, I may sometimes tell people what I think, but that's not intended to tell them what they should think. Right. And do you think that some journalists have gotten too caught up in the hysteria about what's going on and have gone too far in that direction of being advocates on one side or another? Well, I, th I think it happens. but. You know, in news, and this is not a discussion, a, a journalism class, but in news, there's what, what we call in journalism, there's hard news, which is to say, I'm just going to give you the facts. Right, which is what the evening news uh, is and was. Well, not quite. The evening news's attitude, coming through from Ed Murrow to Walter Cronkite to my own time, was basically, you can know all the facts and still not know the truth. So in order to get close to the truth, what you need is 
facts. You need fact-based reporting, but you also need um, conscionable analysis, which is kind of connecting the dots. So the evening news uh, was always a combination of uh, hard news and analysis. For example, Eric Severide, a name which has faded a bit in recent years, but a mentor of mine, Eric Severide dealt with analysis of the news. But now the third category is commentary. That's something different than analysis. Commentary is just, you have hard news, you have the analysis, and you say commentary is just, I'm just gonna comment on the news. The fourth major category is editorial. The difference with an editorial is an editorial strongly suggests, if not all demands, uh, taking a position. A vote for Mary, but more than Bill. Follow this policy. Right. Now, long way around getting around to your question. But I think it's fine if these things are labeled, which is what I try to do myself. Uh, but if it's an editorial, it needs to be clearly labeled, but you can recognize it. If it recommends a course of action or recommends a candidate, then it's an editorial. But at this stage, I don't want to make it complicated for myself or anybody else. Look, I, I think the country's at, at a perilous point, having said so. Uh, I think I know a few things from being alive this long and making a few miles and seeing a few things. So when the occasion merit, merits it, you know, I'm gonna try to give you the facts straight up, no chaser. Uh, when appropriate, I'm gonna try to provide some analysis for context and perspective. Uh, when it comes to what I think, as I say, I'll tell you what I think, but I'm not trying to tell you what to think. Um, we talked about this a little bit last night, about what's going on with Me Too and sexual harassment today. As you look at what's happening in the, and the reshifting of uh, society and, and rules and things that are accepted and, and not, I mean, as you look back on, on your own career in news and, and on uh, newsrooms that were probably very male dominated through. Definitely. Right. Um, do you look back, are you looking back these days and thinking about situations and thinking, yikes, well, that, that couldn't go today? Well, all kinds of things. You know, it, sometimes I'm afraid to look back because it's pretty scary back there. Right. Uh, particularly for women particularly people of minority uh, race or religion. But look, newsrooms quite generally reflect the society as a whole. And what we're dealing with now, long overdue, is a reckoning. You ask, look, I, I grew up in my early years around newspapers and wire services uh, where there were no women reporters. In fact, in many cases, there were no women working anywhere in the building, much less on the floor. But anyway, again, here we are soon approaching 2020. And what's happened in the last few months, certainly over the last six months of the year, I do think represents the proverbial sea change. I do think the reckoning has come, the reckoning is here. And two things are demanded. Uh, one is it has to stop. Now, there's no way to stop it just on a dime, stop being uh, what was accessible uh, for men, and particularly men in power, and how they treated and uh, what their attitude was toward women. But this means just that, but it's gonna, going forward, there's gonna be a big change. And a lot of it, what that change is and how effective it is, is up to men. Which is, men will either change or they will pay a huge price for it, both individually and collectively. And men have to 
to, to stand up and start speaking out against these things. It can't just be the women. What I worry about the most, and we're very deep in this subject, quite frankly, is when I talk about a reckoning and change, it will happen first in big corporations and large companies. What we have to worry about is how quickly can we get this reckoning, this change, down to the bottom on the socioeconomic scale. Yeah. Women who make up the beds in hotels, women who are waitresses in small places, work mostly menial work, right. are the most vulnerable they always have been and they remain so right now. You had the first interview uh, with President Clinton after he was impeached. Do you think uh, that history will look at him differently in the wake of what's going on uh, today with the conversation about sexual harassment? And do you think that Monica Lewinsky got an unfair shake uh, in the media? Well, as to the first, uh, and you and I over an adult beverage discussed this at least once before. That <laughs> no, what I've found is that uh, it's very hard to talk about what history's judgment is going to be. Mm -hmm. That, you know, making predictions about that, uh, my saying is that he who lives by the crystal ball learns to eat a lot of broken glass, and I've, I've eaten more than my share. But in trying to answer the question, uh, that I, I think that President Clinton's presidency may, as time goes along, suffer more than it has up to now uh, because of, of the impeachment. Just the fact that he was only the second president to be impeached, Andrew jo uh, Johnson being the other back in 1900s, uh, 1800s, uh, I think will, will grow as part of his legacy. It's not to say that I believe, because I don't, that President Clinton, as time goes along, may be seen as overall in the main, his a better presidency than sometimes he is now. Uh, as for Monica Lewinsky, I'll, I'll be candid and say, I just don't think I'm qualified to say whether she was mistreated at, you know, in the whole time. Certainly there were periods in the beginning uh, when I think she was. But uh, about that, I just don't know. Um, we talked a little last night on my show uh, about Charlie Rose, and given the way your career ended at CBS News, I think I know the answer to this, but are you surprised at the speed with which CBS and NBC with Matt Lauer kind of erased these people who were such prominent faces of their news organization? Well, uh, first of all, I think you do need to separate the, uh, our own case, my own case. Yes, yes had absolutely. Story. Uh, no, I, I, yes. no, 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 no. But the question, the question is a fair question, and what I answered last night is true. No, I was not surprised at how quickly uh, that CBS uh, dealt with the Charlie Rose thing, because corporations, uh, they detest controversy of any kind, whether it's over questions raised about a story or sexual harassment. It's in their nature uh, to want to rid themselves of any controversy and as quickly as possible. Secondarily, that this case uh, happened right in the midst of a, what we described before, a national movement, s movement a yeah. cyclone of a movement. Yeah. So it didn't take much imagination you know, to say at the time, whatever the facts are, uh, that they're gonna move pretty quickly on Charlie. Have you had any contact with Charlie since? You know, I haven't. Uh, I, I have reached out to him, but uh, 
understandably, I think he's taking some, some time away. Um, how do you look back today at the way your time at CBS News ended? Well, obviously, I didn't like the way my time at CBS News ended, but... Does it make you mad? No. Are you emotional about it? Well, first of all, it's been a long time ago. It's been yeah. uh, more than 12 years ago. And I can truthfully say I seldom think about it anymore. Really? But I wasn't nearly as mad at the time as I was sad about the time. Uh, that, and let's don't get into... We reported a true story. We didn't, the process by which we arrived at the truth was not perfect. So those who found it to be the proverbial inconvenient truth attacked us on the process and they were successful. But I've always said, and I continue to say, I had a great run at CBS News. I'm proud of, of every moment I was there, including the tough times uh, at the end. Yeah. No, I didn't like the way uh, it ended. Uh, but I always say I, I, was, I was very lucky to be at CBS for as long as I was there. I still have many friends there, and it's so far back in the distant past, so much has happened since that time. Uh, I bear no one there, even the, some of the executives who were there at the time and are still there. I bear no one there, ill will. Uh, you, and listen, Redford portrayed you in the movie, so I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not all bad. Isn't it wild when you look back on the era of the three anchormen and, and it's like the Mount Rushmore of, of, of TV <laughs> news and it's you and Brokaw and Jennings. And with all due respect to the gentleman who came on who is the new anchor of the evening news, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I mean, what, how does that make you feel or where do you put that, that you were part of this you were the last moment in this huge uh, moment for, for television journalism. Well, I, I appreciate both the substance and, and the tenor of that, but the longer I go, the more I appreciate the value of gratitude, humility, and modesty. Not three words normally associated with television anchormen. I, I True, agree. I was just thinking. But nonetheless, the longer I go there. And, you know, talk about Mount Rushmore and being held in high esteem. Very few things in television are lasting. When people talk about a legacy or what was it like to feel that way, most things in television are ephemeral. And I have no illusions uh, that the best I can say for myself, I tried hard to be an honest, hardworking reporter. And I will say, I don't speak for Peter, uh, who's now deceased, or for that matter, my friend Tom Brokaw, but I never thought of myself in those terms. I, I can truthfully say, I have, as you well know, Andy, I have a lot of faults and a lot of, have made a lot of mistakes. But I always felt so fortunate to have succeeded Walter Cronkite as anchor and managing editor of the CBS News. I was in an almost constant sweat to, to do it as well as I could do it. Uh, widely believed it may not be, but that was what was in my head. Talk about the Mount Rushmore of anchormen or the big three or something like that. Uh, it wasn't much of a factor while I was doing the news, and I haven't thought in those terms in years because I do try to be into gratitude, humility, and modesty, as you are. Yes. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, speaking of the, the humility and modesty and things that... Uh, President Trump has not mentioned the book. I didn't start out to write the book and say, I'm not going to mention President Trump. Right. But I wanted the book to be something 
broader and deeper. And Good. That. But somebody did uh, ask me if I had sent him a copy uh, of the book. And when I first started making the book tour, and I thought about it and said, well, you know, no, I didn't actually send him a copy. Uh, somebody had told me he wasn't exactly a great reader. Right. <laughs> but, you know, there is an audio version of this book. I thought, well, maybe it's in the audio version. <laughs> well, that's a great idea because you're, it is so pleasant sitting here listening to your voice, isn't it? I mean, he's got, you have a very calming, um, you have a very calming voice. You, um, I, I, I know that you, you've talked about on Dan Rather's America, and I, I know you feel this way, that the president is something of a threat to journalism and free speech. Well, that's Is, is that least. one of the things that keeps you going? Well, no, what keeps me going is I have a passion for reporting. Uh, I love reporting news. That's what keeps me going, is a drive to do that. Uh, but it has um, inspired me to, to, it's too big a word, but part of the reason uh, that I write the Facebook pages, pieces, part of the reason I wrote the book is without being preachy to anybody, I do think people have to recognize that with this president, this is unprecedented in American history, even including the Nixon administration, which was hostile to the press to say the least. But for a first term president, right from the beginning, to launch and sustain a relentless effort to have the public damn an independent and free press. He's attacked individual reporters, including mocking a reporter who had physical disabilities or challenges. He attacks individual journalists. He attacks individual journalistic institutions, such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, and so forth. He attacks journalists as a, as a whole in general, and used even the phrase, enemies of the people. This echoes what every tin-horned dictator in Central America around and echoes the dictatorships even going back quite a ways. That kind of language, particularly in a society such as ours, which depends on the press to be part of our system of, sex, of checks and balances, is extremely dangerous. And by the way, there's been no let-up in that. So as a lifetime journalist, maybe I can be forgiven if somebody says, well, I don't think you ought to stand up and say what you know and what you think about that. But I, it's not a sort of Paul Revere, people, people, wake up. But it is, there's a tendency that, and I think the president believes this, that if he just keeps on doing what he's doing, no matter how outrageous it may be, that it will become the norm. He will normalize debasing political conversation. He will normalize attacking on the press. And if he or any other president were to succeed in doing that, it would be uh, extremely perilous for the country. What, uh, what do you consider at this point in your career to have been your greatest achievement? Well, uh, uh, my greatest achievement personally was marrying Jean Rather, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, How long uh, have you uh, been uh, married? Uh, uh, um, 60 years, but, but uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I appreciate the applause, but anybody, everybody, anybody and everybody who's been married know 
knows nobody gets through it unscathed. It's not to say <laughs> we haven't had our difficulty. But uh, professionally, gosh, you know, it's not a question I think I, I can answer. Uh, there's no one thing uh, that, you know, I, I'm proud to have covered Dr. Martin Luther King in the early stages of the civil rights movement. Uh, I was proud to cover American fighting men and women in combat in any number of places around the world in Vietnam. So I, you know, let's face it, I've been so lucky, Andy, that I never can point to any one thing and say, well, you know, that's my signature. That's my signature time. I can just say that, you know, uh, I've never been the smartest journalist around, never been the best writing journalist around, think my writing's gotten better. Uh, but I, I can, can say, and I do console myself with this, that I have given it everything I've had. And as long as I'm upright breathing and have my health, I'll, I'll continue trying to be as good as I can be. Dan, I gotta ask, you're 86, do you ever get tired? Well, of course sometimes I get tired. And you I do? Get, I get tired more often now than I used to. Okay. I, I mean, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you, oh no, Andy, I right. never get tired. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I try you like everybody. A, you should see his schedule. I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Well, you know, fear is a great motivator. <laughs> <laughs> what scares you? Well. Uh, not being as good as I, uh, I think I can be. Excuse me. You know, uh, I know you're about to go to the questions, Andy, and if you give me an anchorman indulgence, I want to ask you to speak up particularly because uh, I lost 40% of my hearing in Vietnam and age is taking care of the rest. Yeah. So I don't hear as well okay. as I once did. But if, you, if we have the time to do it, I'll quickly tell you a, a story that comes to mind each time that I have to remind somebody publicly, which is a little embarrassing, but nonetheless to tell you. And I wouldn't tell this story if it were not for the fact that uh, Betsy Cronkite, Walter Cronkite's longtime wife, she told the story with great glee, so I don't have any uh, compunction about telling it. That uh, Walter, uh, whom I've admired uh, both in life and in death for my own lifetime, uh, late in life he, he got his hearing begin to go. And uh, one weekend, according to Betsy Cronkite, they were sailing off Martha's Vineyard, and it was, uh, they had some guests, and Saturday afternoon she said quickly to Walter, we need to go in and get some supplies on the mainland. So they got in the dinghy and went in. It was Saturday afternoon on Martha's Vineyard, and the store they went to, they usually went to, was fairly crowded. And you know, with Walter, Walter was terrific meeting people. You know, people want to come up and say, I've watched you since I was a child. Uh, do you know so-and-so? Have you ever met so-and-so, this sort of thing? So it took them forever to work their way through the crowd, but Mrs. Cronkite increasingly uh, a bit irritated by taking so long. They finally get up the cash register, said Mrs. Cronkite, and she thinks they're gonna get out, and a guy kind of comes out of the crowd and says to Walter, do you know so-and-so and so-and-so? And, -so? and Walter pulled himself up to his full height and put on his anchorman voice and said, well, I can't say that I know him, but I have met him, and he seemed to be a very nice fellow. Thank you very much. <laughs> they get outside, and Betsy says, she said to Walter, Walter, you have to do something with your hearing. <laughs> that man asked you, do you know Jesus? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's really funny. 
Um, who was your who was your favorite person to go out and, and, and drink wild turkey with after a long day at CBS News? Was there another correspondent that you would hang out with the most? Well, in the early days, I hung out with Severide as much as I possibly could. Really? I admired him greatly. Uh, he drank scotch, not wild turkey. But, uh, but uh, you know, any number of people, Tom Batag, who was my executive producer in the evenings for yeah. a long time, uh, was a it was a good man to go out and talk about the day with. Jim Murphy, who was executive producer yeah. for a long while. Did you, who was your biggest, who, who did you see as your biggest rival uh, in, your, in your time when you were at CBS? Who were you going up against for stories? Well, uh, by the time I got to the evening news, uh, it was not quite a three network race. Yeah. Uh, that and when I first came to the evening news, Tom Brokaw was not in the anchor chair at that time. Uh, but very quickly, uh, that NBC was our main competitor when I first started. But ABC under Rune Arledge was coming like a ton. And in fact, Walter Cronkite once told me one reason he wanted to re he Walter wanted to retire when he did was because ABC under Arledge was building a real competitor. But when I first started, NBC was the main competitor, but very quickly it became a three-way race. So I always saw both uh, Tom and Peter uh, as major competitors. And in the beginning, you know, we kind of circled one, each other as young men do and uh, sized one another. But as time went along, we got mutual respect for one another, which eventually led to friendship. But the answer to your question is that NBC and ABC were always the big competitors. Um Here's some audience questions. Mr. Rather, can you tell us about getting assaulted on TV in Chicago at the Democratic Convention in 1968? Are things today different? Well, uh, first of all, what happened in Chicago, and we won't go through the whole thing, is that there was an effort to, uh, to keep control inside and outside of the convention center in Chicago. Uh, opposition to the Vietnam War and racial problems had created a very volatile situation. And in the effort of plainclothes security people and the police to keep what they considered to be peace in the hall, I wound up being hit uh, by a security officer while I was doing an interview. But what's different today, the 1968 conventions, both the Democratic Convention and the Republican Convention, a case can be made and I'm here to make it. They were the last nominating conventions where things were actually decided at the convention. Ever since then, it's all been uh, homogenized and all, set, all settled before they get to because each party wants to put on the show for as long as they can. So the 68 conventions are marked, both those conventions, uh, the Democratic nominee was not settled until the convention actually convened him. And lesser notice, the Republican convention, Richard Nixon didn't have the votes, all the votes he needed for the nomination in 1968 because he was being challenged by uh, a very successful governor named Ronald Reagan. Now, he managed to stand off Reagan, but my point is that the convention actually decided. These days, it's all decided before you get to the convention. What story is the most underreported but important right now? I think the, uh, the rapid development of artificial intelligence it has, it has been reported and increasingly there are reports about it. But this, 
this whole subject, this, the whole development of artificial intelligence is coming like a fast freight. And I don't think most people understand it. They understand that something's going on with artificial intelligence, but it's gonna take a long time to come around. I think that would be an example. And it, it's an always underreported story, an always underreported story is how many people uh, are in need, even in a very wealthy society such as our own, uh, the hungry, uh, the homeless, uh, the heartbroken, uh, the helpless, the voiceless, and those people who uh, believe they have no further hope. is always an underreported story. Dan, uh, can you name three current journalists uh, on air who you respect the work of? Uh, I can. I could probably name uh, half a dozen or, or, or maybe a dozen. I'm not going to, and here's the reason. If you name three, right. th you leave out three. I will say this, that there are any number of really good journalists practicing now, including any number of good television journalists. The difference between this time and the heyday of my time, if you want to call it that, is news consumers have to work harder to find it. There's so many people on the air in so many places, so many people find on the internet, that the burden is more, as I say, on the news consumer to find those places where you say, I think I can trust this person. What'd you think of Megyn Kelly going after Jane Fonda yesterday? Well, you know, that's one of those things I wouldn't touch with a 16-foot pole, <laughs> which is what I wouldn't touch with a 20-foot pole. <laughs> uh, Mr. Rather, please tell us who was your favorite person to interview and why. Thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Again, you know, I, I hate to pick any, any one person. Look, it's always an honor and always a challenge uh, to interview any president of the United States, whether and uh, you've interviewed everyone since Eisenhower, and I have a feeling that that streak is going to be broken. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, not to not to well, always, rain on your parade. No, no. I, I, well, I always what I say is that I, I've interviewed every man who's been president uh, since since Harry Truman, and I have interviewed Donald Trump, not as president, but have interviewed him. But listen, streaks like that are sort of routine. But to answer your question about interview, uh, that you never met anybody who had more res who had and has more respect for the office of the president of the United States than I do. On the other hand, I was raised by people and taught by people uh, that a president of the United States is just another citizen. A president is not a descendant from the sun god. Uh, he's a citizen that we've raised to the highest honor. But uh, I would say over the years, uh, interviewing any person uh, who's president, who's been president, who's about to be president, but particularly in the White House, to interview a president is a high honor and a great challenge. Talk me through this. Um, because as an American, I, 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 I mean, I think we all feel that, that the president always just, by the office of the presidency is something that you respect. Um, but just as an American, I've had a hard time wrestling with trying to find respect uh, for the man who holds that office Well, I think today. that's shared. What do I do with that, Dan? Well, Where do I go? <laughs> well, one thing is don't go to uh, some whiskey-breathed, nicotine-stained, uh, stubble-bearded journalist and ask for advice. Okay. But uh, the way I think of it, and I do recommend thinking of it, 
you can have tremendous respect for the office of the President of the United States and understand that a president in our system is both head of government and head of state, unlike in a parliamentary system where, you're, for example, the king or queen is head of state and the prime minister is head of it. So think of it as respect for the office. In, in the 10 years that I was a chief White House correspondent for CBS News, I never walked through the gates. I wasn't slightly awed and, and really felt a sense of responsibility. But I didn't want to make it, you know, to be worshipful. It's not in the American character to be worshipful of our politicians, but respect for the office, the man has to, has to win your respect. Did you go, uh, when, when it was you and uh, Tom and Peter, did you go once a year for an off-the-record session with the president together every year? Yes, and that's, that still happens, although it's been broadened. Uh, beginning, and I think it began during the Johnson administration, every year at about the time of the State of the Union, the president would have the major anchor men, and they were all men at that time, uh, for lunch? Upstairs at the White House, lunch, strictly off-the-record lunch. Uh, Do you remember any of those lunches? Does any of those lunches stick out to you as, wow, that was crazy for one reason or another, or really fun? Well, I can't say that any of them were fun. They, they, <laughs> no, but they were, they were all interesting. I mean, let's face it. Uh, Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan were both terrific talkers. Uh, great storytellers. Uh, in Texas language, you know, Bill Clinton and or Ronald Reagan could talk a dog off a meat wagon. And they all had great stories. And, uh, and, and being around Lyndon Johnson was always, frankly, in any surrounding, you know, he, he I don't know, he, he, would, he could be crude and rude, but he also, uh, had a lot of good stories. So I think that the times I remember the most is when the president would tell you know, some yarn, some story, true or untrue, to try to get a laugh, and particularly with uh, Reagan and Clinton because both were such good storytellers and such good conversationalists. Um, what advice do you have for someone who wants to get more involved to make changes but, also, uh, but often fi finds more discouragement than progress? Advice for someone who wants to make a positive change in the country. Well, again, I always smile when somebody asks me advice. I don't know whether I'm the person for advice, but let me try to answer the question. If you're in that situation, particularly if you're afraid of what's happening with the country and disillusioned about things, when your feet hit the floor in the morning, get up and say, what can I do for one other person today? So what can I do to help somebody else today? One other person. Frankly, I think it's better if that person is of a different race, religion, ethnic background, but try to do something each day for one other person. Secondly, care about your community. Do something for the community as a whole. Do some kind of charity work. Do something that contributes to the community as a whole. And then if you're really worried about the political leadership, and you don't, whether it's local, state, or national, uh, you've got to get active, you've got to get organized and stay organized, all with the goal of getting yourself and getting other people to the polls. Because listen, all the chatter on cable television, including my own, 
all the back and forth over the internet and social media, all the shutdowns and start backs up, it all gets down to the ballot box. And if you're angry about what happened in the last election, whenever that was, whatever party you're in, in our system, revenge is best served at the ballot box. That's the payoff time. Um, this, is a, this is a great way to end it. Um, Sarah says, can you name the top five first things that come to mind that unite us all? What a good question, I appreciate the question. Okay, uh, rule of law, right to vote, empathy, which is vastly underestimated and underrated among uh, the American people, a commitment to improving in the future, and in this country, yes, I think courage. Courage is admired in this country. We're not just talking about battlefield courage, but the kind of courage it takes to walk up police beat by yourself at 2.30 in the morning in a bad neighborhood. The kind of courage it takes if you're a single mother uh, working three different jobs, trying for the kids. That kind of courage is, I think, most consistent with American character, and I think it's one of the things that unites us. Everyone, thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.